Kia ora and welcome to this edition of Asia Inside, the podcast from the Asia New Zealand Foundation to Fitoto Hono in Wellington. I'm Graham Acton. The Defence Summit meeting known as the Shangri-La Dialogue is a mainstay of diplomacy in Southeast Asia, but it's been absent from the calendar for a couple of years due to COVID. This year marked the return of the Singapore Summit, which again attracted politicians, analysts and journalists from around the world. Among those attending from New Zealand were Defence Minister Penny Henare. Also in the audience this year were Professor David Cappy from the Centre for Strategic Studies at Victoria University and Newsroom's National Affairs Editor Sam Sachdeva. They gave me their impressions on the meeting and its importance for the region. I think Shangri-La is, is unique, really, in, in the sort of regional conference, regional diplomacy space, in that it's 20 years old now, and for all of those 20 years, it's brought defence ministers from across the region together to talk sort of unashamedly about the region's more intractable and harder security issues. Uh, and it really has benefits, I think, at a couple of different levels. One is that it provides an opportunity for ministers to come together and to provide uh, their views on policy and uh, and to give a sense of what their concerns are and how they see the region and, and to hear from other their counterparts what those are uh, and to signal. But then there's also another whole world that exists at Shangri-La, sort of behind the scenes, and that's where countries come together and meet with uh, uh, delegations from other countries and nut out a whole lot of defence diplomacy and sort of diplomatic business. Uh, and in some ways, that's sort of speed dating. You know, uh, countries will often do 20, 25, of these over a weekend. You know, it's not really apparent, it's below the surface, but it's really valuable. Sam, how does it look from a reporter's point of view? Yeah, look, probably similar. Uh, there's, there's certainly value, there was value for me in, in, in being sort of being in the room with all these experts and, and ministers and, and being able to, you know, grab them for a conversation when I was able to. And, uh, yeah, it's, I guess I'd echo David's point where you've that's the value of the face-to-face stuff. And when I spoke to our Defence Minister, Penny Hanare, afterwards, that, that's what he said, is that, you know, you, you can't really replicate that sort of personal exchange over Zoom, which we, we've had to do it because of the pandemic and people have made it work, but it's not really a perfect substitute for, for being in the room with someone else. So I think that was the... The great value at a political level and, and probably at a, a media level as well. It was being uh, marketed, I suppose, uh, as a an opportunity for the Chinese to come face to face with the Americans. Uh, did that sort of happen in the way that the media was painting it uh, before the conference started? Yes. So go- going in, you had the uh, US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin who talked about setting guardrails in the relationship. And I think on the Chinese side, they said something similar about having those lines of communication. So I think in that sense, it's probably mission achieved. They both came out of their meeting. I think it was meant to run for half an hour, but the report said it went for almost twice that. They were both quite positive, said that they, you know, it had been a, a frank discussion, that, that they'd agreed to, to keep talking. So I don't think there was any expectation of a grand agreement or any any big outcomes, but simply the fact that they were there seeing each other and that they've agreed to keep talking is, is probably regarded as a success. Was it was it seen on the on the ground or in the room? Was it seen as a tense meeting? Look, I think there's always a degree of tension hanging over it. Partly it's structural in the sense that um, the American Secretary of Defense by tradition speaks first on the first session on the first morning and the Chinese defense minister or representative speaks first on the second day. And so I think there's there's, there's a little bit of an element of uh, not quite tit for tat, but 
you know, responding to what, what one another has, has said. And so I think that, and at a time in which there's broader sort of tension in the region, it's, it plays out in the conference. But I think this time it was, it was quite interesting in that while this is obviously a very difficult time in US-China relations, I got the feeling that on the public stage at least, or at least in the plenaries, there was an attempt to be somewhat measured in the way that they talked about each other and while calling out what they considered to be bad behavior or, or talking about disagreements, they were quite careful not to sort of do it do it by name. So there were just small things that I think in some ways spoke to the fact that they'd had, as Sam said, they'd had this meeting the day before, this first personal meeting between the two secretaries. And I think there was a bit of a desire not to let that momentum just be Go, go to waste through a, you know a, a, a more combative interaction in the plenaries themselves. One of the one of the subjects that was reported back in New Zealand was the the comments that were made by the Chinese representative about Taiwan and mm-hmm. how I think he said fight to the very end over Taiwan. How was that received? Do you think at the conference? Look, I mean, I think sometimes when you're outside. The conference, these things really jump out at you and they seem really sharp. If you've gone a few years in a row, you get used to hearing versions of the same sort of language. And I don't think it seems quite as, I mean, I think also you have to remember that the PLA officers who are there, one level, they're speaking to the people in the hall, but they're also speaking very much to an audience back in, in China. And so they, there's pretty strong incentives for them to be, to be seen as robust and, and, and hawkish. So I don't think that it was seen as a particularly stark um, warning. What was interesting, again, was to go back to Austin's comments, was he was very clear in some ways about the US position on Taiwan, talking about, for example, we you know, we don't want to change in the status quo. We don't support independence for Taiwan. So there was a reassuring quality in some ways to their interactions. I'll just, just jump in very yeah. briefly on that. I mean, I looked back to check uh, on General Wei's speech from 2019, because he spoke at the same time, and the language is very similar. That fight to the very end line, that was in there, but he was talking about the trade war in, in that context. So the language seemed inflammatory, but the fact that you've heard it so many times before perhaps reduces the significance you attach to it. It is, it is from that perspective, it is, it is a remarkably frank forum. You don't really see that kind of meeting in other parts of the world, I think. And it's, a, it's an opportunity for countries like China and the US to, to come together and say some quite frank things in a public way, which is kind of useful maybe for diplomacy or maybe, um, maybe create its own problems. But as far as this meeting went, do you think that the main players got from it what they thought they would get from it? Did, did anyone walk away from it thinking, yes, we won, we took, we took that down? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think mm. that... Um I, I, you know, I think both sides probably went into it with a clear set of their interests and their positions and both probably left fairly convinced about their own interests and positions. I don't think there was an awful lot of, as Sam said, I don't think there was an awful lot, an expectation that would be any kind of, of great breakthrough or great shift. And, you know, I think sometimes the, the value of these things is really what happens behind the scenes just in terms of those first personal connections and, 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 and a frank exchange that, that can then perhaps be a building block for a second meeting at some point down the track. But, but I don't think anybody came away really radically um, surprised or, or transformed by what they'd, they'd heard. Sam, as far as the media goes, what do you think? That, how do you think that the, the conference went and what, what value did you see in it? It was a little more complicated this time. I've been once before, thanks to Asia New Zealand in 2019, but you know, with Singapore has just come out of its COVID restrictions, but there was still a level of caution, I think. So we were not meant to be in the main ballroom where the, the speeches are. I managed to sneak in for the um, the Chinese defence minister, but for the most part, we were following along from 
you know, a live a live feed that they were playing into some press rooms. So you know, at, at that level, it's a little little more difficult to to really get the read of the room, feel the vibe. But having said that, I managed to make it into the Australian Defence Minister's uh, press conference at the end of the event. He spoke to the Australian media, and I. Uh, managed to get an invite from the High Commission. So, yeah, it's that sort of the access you get on the sidelines, really, as much as anything, which you get value from. So the meeting was, of course, held under the shadow of the conflict in Ukraine, and I've seen media reporting on the speech from the new Japanese Prime Minister, Kishida, where he suggested that uh, Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. Did you hear that speech, David? Yeah, that it was, I mean, in some ways, the sort of the spectre of Ukraine slightly hung over all of the conference. Um, and um, just as part of the huge range of challenges that are, you know, across the region right now, questions about the rules-based order and international law, but also the way it's played into inflation and the cost of living and supply chain ructions that even for countries that don't maybe have a strong view one way or another, they're getting swept up in the sort of the economic downstream effects of the war. So it was all playing out across different different panels. I thought Prime Minister Kishiva gave a really interesting speech where um, he talked about the, the risks of, of what Ukraine says about a world in which the strong do what they want uh, and you don't have respect for international law. But he also and, and he used that as a, a basis for talking about a Japan that's prepared to spend more on defense and, and wants to do more in terms of a security role in the region. But he also had quite an elaborate what what was called a Kashida vision for peace, uh, quite an elaborate framework of uh, talking about longstanding Japanese um, interests and positions as well on things like um, a non-nuclear position, elimination of nuclear weapons, economic diplomacy, um, the importance of alliances and partnerships. It was a really comprehensive speech, and I thought it was very well crafted. But there was certainly, across the conference as a whole, that you know the implications of Ukraine continued to play out. And of course, one of the highlights of the two days, in some ways, of course, was there was a live address from President Zelensky, which just sort of reinforced the way it. The, t- the two the, the two regions connect. What did he say to the conference? Well, he, his was a really um, very cleverly put together uh, short broadcast. It was only probably twenty minutes long or so, live. Um, and he he the, the, you can't help but be pretty impressed by the way that the. the the Ukrainians have mobilized their message over the last three months or so, and this was no exception. He had a T-shirt that he was wearing, which featured a design that a girl in Singapore had had produced and sent to him. So he he was able to connect that Singaporean shirt to the people in the room. Uh, and then his address, he basically reiterated this idea of, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world of international law, or do we want to live in a world of the law of the jungle? Uh, and very cleverly, he qu- quoted Lee Kuan you back to again to a Singapore audience saying, you know, we don't want to live in a world where the big fish fish eat the little fish and the little fish eat the shrimps. Um, You know, we need to stand up to to aggression and stand up to these this violation of of international law. So in some ways, it wasn't a particularly complicated message that he sort of imparted. It was more that the, you know, that it happened at all. Uh, And it it certainly, I think, uh, you know, it was quite a powerful and and quite moving in its own way message. Was that a uh, recorded presentation? Did he take questions? Yeah, it was live and and he took questions. Well, what was the nature of the questions? Can you remember? There there was a question about this, you know, the the quote from Kashida that uh, Ukraine today is, is East Asia tomorrow. And, you know, what did he think about 
deterring China in relation to Taiwan? I, I'm not sure that he answered it as directly as probably the question <laughs> would have liked. You know, he is he is still a politician and a diplomat, and I suppose there's a degree of trepidation of of wading into you know one and one superpower's activities when you're already dealing with another in your own country. So, yeah, that 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 is the one question that I recall, and he was fairly careful in how he he sort of came at that. The US Indo-Pacific Commander John Aquilino, Aquilino. Aquilino says the, told the conference that the world is at the most dangerous point since 1945. Did he have a good argument to back that up? To be honest, he spoke in a parallel session on maritime security when we were listening to loyally listening to Minister Henry in the uh, panel on climate change as good New Zealand representatives. So um, I heard Aquilino gave a fairly... Um, rousing address uh, in a sort of um, uh, a military tone, but I can't say that I heard what his evidence was to back up the claim. All right, so Defence Minister Penny Hanare was at the conference, and what did he tell the audience? So he was on a panel on climate change and green defence, which was one of the concurrent sessions at the end of the first day, and it was an interesting panel. It included the top British Navy Admiral, uh, the Defence Minister from the Maldives, uh, and a German Defence Minister, and all of them brought sort of different angles to the same problem to it. But essentially, Minister Henry talked about how the government's defence approach to climate change is playing out in terms of um, the different dimensions. So adaptation, the need to adapt defence bases and equipment and so on for a, for a world in which there are rising seas and different kinds of climate challenges. The need to be able to do more, for example, in, in places like the Pacific uh, and laid that out, but but also talked um, a little bit about, um, about the defence forces uh, and the need to decarbonise the defence force as well and the challenges of that. It was a panel of yeah. four, and it tended right. to. Uh, it was a bit more conversational than the, mm. the the speeches that were on the on the main stage plenary. The other speaker I have seen that I thought was interesting was uh, the Indonesian Prabowo Subianto, who's sort of advocating an, an ASEAN-based, I suppose, solution to the problems that are besetting Southeast Asia at the moment. It's a very interesting speech. Here's a little bit of what he had to say. Even we have some differences. We will strive to solve those differences in an amicable and in a mutually beneficial way. That is the Asian way. We have differences with, with Singapore. We have differences with Malaysia. We have differences now with Malaysia. But we consider Malaysia very close to us. And we are determined to solve those differences without resort to any force. That's our determination. We, 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 lo we had territorial disputes. Remember Sipadan and Ligitan. Now we still have problems. But as I said, I would like to reiterate, Indonesia is determined to resolve the differences with our neighbors without resort to any use of force. We are convinced that with friendly cooperation, uh, everybody wins. Indonesian Defence Minister Subianto there speaking at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Just to you, Sam, what did you make of that speech and how did it go down with the audience? Yeah, I mean, I think he spoke pretty candidly and, and you know, as you say, Graham, it sort of aligns with that ASEAN view that don't don't make us choose, really. We don't want to choose between the US and China and they have a lot of experience with that. You know, Singapore as the host is as well-versed in, in that as anyone else. So 
I think he had a line, if I recall correctly, is you know, your you, your enemy is is not necessarily my enemy. So you know, don't don't try and frame it to me that way. It aligns, I think, with that anxiety that a lot of of countries in Southeast Asia have, and that New Zealand have as well. So there are echoes here, right? That you're kind of walking that tightrope between the US in a security context and and China in an economic context, and trying to you know not lose your balance. Did he have anything to say about Indonesia's future role in in the region? I mean, he may well be the next president of the country, right? I did hear that, you know, there was a lot of talk about him as being a leader of the future. So I think that there were probably, you know, I imagine many of the diplomats in the room, military leaders, were keeping a close eye on him because, as you say, he has seen in that context as someone who is quite likely to lead Indonesia. It was quite interesting in style compared to many of the other ministers. A lot of them were very formal and had sort of a prepared speech and prepared notes. And he sort of wandered across the stage to the lectern with no notes and then gave this very discursive sort of uh, chat. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about the legacies of colonialism in Southeast Asia as much on the Shangri-La stage as I did from Prabowo. I suppose that's the value of this whole thing, isn't it? You know, the discursive nature of it. It's really, it's been organised by a think tank and it's... It, but it manages to pull in leaders from around the region and they can maybe not say whatever they like, but they can certainly be very frank in a way that they maybe can't be in other Yeah, and, fora, I, think, I, think. Uh, and I think the mm. other thing that's interesting about it is they also have to take questions. And so you have these ministers up there who can often give, you know, can read a speech with the best of them, but then they have to sit there and take often what are quite difficult technical questions or uh, from the floor. And there were a few ministers that you listened to them speak and you thought, oh, excellent, very polished. And then they were just really very poor in the Q&A and looking down at their notes and, you know, just really stumbling. So it, it's it's a real it's, – it's, and that makes – that's the spontaneity of that and the, is absolutely fascinating. And, and, you know, it's across the board as well, right? The Chinese defence minister had to take questions and I yeah. cannot imagine any, <clears throat> if any other context where, where they do. And I know, again, harking back to 2019, he got a question there about Tiananmen Square. You know, can you imagine anywhere else? Certainly not anywhere in China where that, that would happen. So it's quite striking. Mm. Just talking about China and, and that speech, I suppose, the – some some analysis that was suggesting that China is wanting to uh, develop its own its own club in the region in the way that the US has developed a club in the region, and that it doesn't like the idea that that, that it's being told not to do that. I'm just wondering what the what the attitude of the Chinese representative there was. You know what I mean? Like I'm talking about the Pacific and mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. I, look, I, I think that. China feels a sense of a little bit of a sense of frustration when it comes to Shangri-La. It's, um, I mean, for a long time until 2019, the defense minister didn't attend, and that was always a source of some frustration. I think for S. but they've had a defense minister since 2019. But I think the Chinese do feel, and in fact, one of the Chinese questioners at the very in the final panel on the on the Sunday said to um, the S director John Chipman and and the Singaporean defense minister Ung, you know. Some people say this is, um, you know, um, too pro-American and the agenda reflects American interests and is anti-Chinese. What do you say? And Minister Ung just said, um, well, you know, look, um, there are different ways of organizing these things. Different people have different tastes. China has its own defense diplomacy forum that it tried to run for a while, the Zhangshan Forum. And he said that's very scripted and, you know. Bit, bit stayed, and I like something a bit more spontaneous, basically. But but if 
you know, nobody has to come. If you don't want to come, you don't have to. What I thought interesting was that China and the US have agreed to what I understand is a crisis communications working group, which sounds like a step in vaguely the right direction. Uh, do you know much about that? I don't know the details, but speaking more generally, that, that's sort of been the problem, right, that they, they just aren't talking. And that is the greatest fear, I think, when it comes to areas like the South China Sea, where there's a lot of concern. I think the Malaysian Defence Minister said any conflict there could be the most deadly in our time, if not in history. So they are very anxious. And I don't think it would be a deliberate move by one country or the other. It would probably be, you know, if, if one ship accidentally crashed into another or aircraft doing manoeuvres. So I think having that those channels of communication to avoid an accident because one hand isn't talking to the other, that's vital. It's one of those things that I, it's going on all the time and so it doesn't really reach the surface very often, that sort of you know back-channel discussion that's going on. But I want to talk about New Zealand and I'm just wondering, was there discussion about New Zealand's defence commitment or the amount of money we're spending on defence or that we should spend more money in the future or was that discussed? Not not directly in the dialogue, but I think it's very clearly on our government's mind. Again, I spoke to Penny Hinade afterwards and he said, you know, look, I am going to go back and talk to Cabinet about this. I'm very aware, because you had, you know, uh, Richard Miles, the Australian Defence Minister, saying we're going to get to 2% of GDP defence spend, same for Japanese Prime Minister Kishida. The gap between those countries and us starts to get more and more pronounced. I think he's very cognizant about it, and he said, you know, it's my job to make the case for extra investment, to show why it's needed and where it's needed. Whether he'll succeed in that is, is a different question. I mean, you look at last term, there was a large amount of, of spending on new, you know, uh, aircraft, on in other areas, it's probably the largest spending I imagine in decades. So uh, it's not un it's not a vote winner, right? Defence, foreign affairs in general in New Zealand. So is Labour, with relatively tight purse strings, going to have the capacity or desire to put extra money in? I, I just don't know. Do you think that Australia was concerned, or was expressing actual concern about the amount of money New Zealand spending on defence? Well, I, I asked Richard Miles about this mm. at the the press conference he held at, at the close of the event, and he, he downplayed it. He said, you know, look, we have a very strong relationship. The ANZAC spirit is still there. We can make our own investments and capability increases, but we can still work with New, the New Zealand thanks to the interoperability we have. So at least explicitly no, but I am sure behind the scenes that it would be something that comes up. I think there were suggestions last term that they had sort of leaned on us to get these new P-8 aircraft that we got. So I think there's there's an awareness that, you know, look, hey, we help you guys out. Australia helping New Zealand, you you need to be able to help us as well. Also on the sidelines, there was the meeting between the New Zealand Defence Minister and Chinese counterpart. Did he talk to you about that? Yeah, yeah, he did. So he said it was a pretty pretty frank conversation, a pretty direct conversation. You know that that general way made the case for Chinese investment in the Pacific and why they were there, and and and, and that he Hanade said in return, you know, look, that's fine, but we have our expectations about the sovereignty of these Pacific nations and the need for stability. So, you know, I, certainly from his accounting of it, I, I don't think there were many, many punches pulled. I, I don't think it was a fractious conversation, but just direct. And, you know, again, he talked, General Way spoke about the relationship between New Zealand and Australia and the US. He apparently expressed this concern that we were getting drawn too closely to them. So, yeah, I, I, you know there is there is that concern on on Chinese minds, and you see it in, in some of the state-owned media running editorials about that, that we've sort of abandoned our independent stance and we're going too close to the US and, and too close to Australia. So it's interesting that that is sort of at an official level, diplomatic level, coming up in the room too. 
There's the in- inverse of that on the show as well, though, the idea that New Zealand is, is not being sufficiently you know, committed to the US side of the divide, if you like, that we are being too ambivalent about China. Was that discussed? Formally, I mean, the minister's speech really didn't touch on those sort of big questions of alignment. It was much more focused on the Pacific and climate change and what it means for a defence force. So there weren't too many opportunities for where that came up. Didn't come up in the Q and A, as I can remember. No, and you know, I didn't. I didn't hear Lloyd Austin mention it or or Penny Hinata mention it of his meeting with Lloyd Austin because they did also mm. sit down and, and have a conversation. But I suspect. It's less of an issue than it was probably three or four years ago, but I think the mm. Americans oh, probably yeah. are a bit more happy about. And know. and Austin gave New Zealand a shout out mm. in his remarks about you know those states that have sort of contributed assistant military assistance to Ukraine. I mean, obviously, it's a very worthwhile meeting and you know very interesting stuff. What was the what was the standout? Do you think for both of you or from it? I had a couple of speeches that I really liked um, that I that I thought were really interesting for different in different ways. One was Richard Miles, the Australian Defence Minister's speech, where it was a sort of speech of two parts. One, it was a sort of a, obviously in the context of a very fractious and difficult Australia-China relationship over the last few years. Um, but the first half of the speech was we're going to have a new tone, we're respectful, we want to engage. But the second half of the speech was very firm in terms of a restatement of Australia's interests and position, and we're not going to you know we're not going to be changing. Um, our views on all of these sorts of important issues around the rules-based order. And the speech was very good, but what really impressed me was the Q&A. And, um, he really just dealt with it extremely impressively. And so that was one. I thought the standout speech, uh, the highlight of the whole conference for me, though, was probably on the cl- um, the final session, which was the Fijian Defence Minister, Seriratu. And there was a lot of Pacific at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue, surprising amount, but he was outstanding in the way that he said, you know, there's a lot of talk about great powers interests, but I'm sorry if I disappoint you when I'm going to talk about what's the number one concern for us, climate change. You might worry about hypersonic missiles, we worry about cyclones. And and it just was a terrific speech. It was funny, substantive, energetic, and I think he really stole the show. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll echo David's comments around Richard Miles. I thought that was an excellent speech and very direct. Again, I'll steal one of David's tweets about this and that Richard probably mentioned China more directly than than anyone else throughout the dialogue. So I think there was that willingness to get into those difficult issues and, and be quite direct. And we've spoken a bit about uh, Prime Minister Kashida's speech. That also stood out to me in terms of the... The content, but also the tone, and it goes to that sense of foreboding that I think you mentioned, Graham. You know, the degree to which he spoke about the nuclear threat and the possibility of another nuclear weapon being used. I talked to a, sort of a, an expert, Anki Panda, on the sidelines, and he said, when you come to Southeast Asia, you don't really expect to hear about sort of the nuclear components. I think that shows the level of anxiety and the, the, the threat that people are, are worried about. Well, guys, that's about all we've got time for. I've been talking to Sam Satch-Dava from Newsroom and Professor David Cappy from Victoria University of Wellington. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Asia Insight. Thanks for listening. Mihi kwe moti whakarongo wa.